And so John tells us that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there's a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. I want you to understand it happens during the Passover. The Passover was the most important feast in Jewish life. And it was celebrated on the 14th day of the first month. For Jews, they referred to that month as Nisan. First month of the year, month of Nisan, 14th day, that's when they celebrated the Passover. In our Western calendar, it usually falls towards the end of March or beginning of April. Somewhere in that time frame, Passover falls. You can read about the original Passover in Exodus 12. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and I don't want to say too much this morning about the actual Passover feast and and the original roots of it. You can read Exodus 12 for that. I do want to tell you this. In Jesus' day... If you were 19 years or older, and you were a Jewish male, and you lived within 15 square miles or 15 miles sort of radius of Jerusalem, they expected you to go. Many, many other people went who lived much further than 15 miles, but if you were in that 15-mile radius, they expected you to show up in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And if you made that trip, whether you were within 15 miles or outside 15 miles, you made a couple of stops as soon as you got to town. The first stop was at the temple. And when you got to the temple, you would offer a sacrifice. Now, this wouldn't be the the big sacrifice that you would offer later for the actual Passover. This would just be you sort of get to town and you offer an initial sacrifice at the temple to worship. Secondly, once you get there, you have to pay the temple tax. If you're a a Jewish male, you show up at the temple, you got to pay the temple tax. Here's the deal. Most of these pilgrims did not want to make their trip with a lamb under their arm. They didn't want to make the trip carrying a a birdcage with pigeons in it. Most of these pilgrims got to the temple and they're ready to pay this tax. You had to pay it in exact coinage, the exact right amount. Most of them just didn't have that lying around at home. And so many of these pilgrims ended up at the temple and they needed a little bit of help. They needed a place to buy an animal to offer as the sacrifice. They didn't want to travel with it. They needed a place to exchange money. This was a a legitimate, genuine need they had. They had to pay the temple tax. Somebody's got to exchange currency or I've got to barter for the right currency. And some of that is going on in this story as we read about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem and it's the Passover. Merchants are there selling animals. Money changers are on site exchanging money. We'll come back to that. Let's talk about the temple. It was constructed by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt, at least sort of, by Zerubbabel. They got something up. It wasn't really great. And many, many years later, Herod the Great renovated it. Really, we should say he expanded it and he beautified it. And then eventually, it's destroyed by the Romans. This story takes place during this renovated by Herod the Great, and when Herod was all done with the temple complex, it looked something like this. And I know the the words are small. I didn't put it up there so you could read every label. I just want you to see the basic layout. Right there in the middle, in the top right of that picture, is the actual temple itself. Right? That's where the ark was kept. That was the most holy place. That's where the high priest went in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the actual temple. Everything around it sort of had other functions. And there's a big open area on the top left. It's the court of the Gentiles. And there's a, a smaller open area, but still big on the bottom right. That's the court of the Gentiles. That was the big open air space where the merchants had set up. 
and where the money changers were set up. This is the area of the temple complex where the Gentiles were allowed to come in. They couldn't go into this inner sort of middle part, but they could come to these outer courts, and they could sort of at a distance be involved in worship. And it's in that spot that all the merchants and all the money changers are set up. Just keep that in your mind. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. In this passage, Jesus clears those big open areas. And they were very large. And he drives everyone out of there. And I just want to acknowledge before we talk about this passage that there's a little bit of debate in the scholarly world about how many times Jesus did this. One group of scholars said he did it once. And another group of scholars says he did it twice. And here's the reason for the debate. When we read the Gospel of John, Jesus clears the temple and it's very early in his ministry. He has just started calling disciples and preaching and healing. And he does this. He clears the temple right at the beginning. But when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about Jesus clearing the temple right before the crucifixion at the very, very end of his life. And so scholars look at this and they say, what do we do with this? Who has it right? And there's many scholars that say, I think Jesus only did this once. And somebody, either Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Or John has rearranged the material. We do that all the time in storytelling, right? If you've been to a movie lately or you watch a TV show, we put flashbacks and flash forwards and all sorts of stuff in there. And when you watch those movies, you don't say, they got the timing all wrong. What in the world? What is you say, oh, I understand. They're, they're telling me something up front or they're, they're coming back and giving me something later. You understand the point in the, the narrative storytelling. Look, Ancient peoples were not foolish. They weren't unsophisticated. They knew how to tell good stories, and they did things like this. So it's possible that somebody has sort of rearranged the material, and maybe, maybe John is giving you a flash forward, or maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke are giving you a flashback. That's possible. What I think is that it happened twice. I just think it makes more sense to say it happened two times. It happened here. John talks about it. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, he's relatively unknown. Not a lot of people know about him. He's been preaching a little bit, but he's been up in the north in Galilee. Nobody paid any attention to Galilee, especially in Jerusalem. And so here comes this carpenter from the backwoods town of Nazareth. Nobody really knows who he is. Nobody really has any association with him. Later, I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe another instance where Jesus comes back a couple of years later and he does the same thing. So you can sort that issue out. The big idea of the passage doesn't change either way. The big idea of the passage is a beautiful and a vitally important Christian truth. The big idea is this. The Lamb of God came to die, but he came knowing that he would not stay dead. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, we've already seen him called that in this gospel, the Lamb of God came to die. That was his mission. That was his purpose. But in coming to die, he knew he would not stay dead. There was no question about that from the outset. Jesus has just performed his first sign in Cana. If you were here last week, we, we talked about that, changing water into wine at this wedding in Cana. It was in the backwoods. Nobody really knew about it, even amongst the people at the party. Only Jesus and his mom and the disciples and the servants knew what had happened. Everyone else just thought they found more wine. right? But it was his first sign. And Jesus makes the trip to Jerusalem. 
This is very early in his ministry. He's not performing this ultimate sign, but he's predicting it. And he's saying to everyone in Jerusalem, this is going to be the ultimate proof of my identity and my mission. I came to die, but I came knowing that I would not stay dead. Let's talk about baseball for a minute. We're right on the edge of baseball season. How many of you are excited for baseball season? How many of you would say baseball is your favorite sport to watch throughout the year? You people are crazy. You need a hobby. Baseball (laughs) is good for naps and going to the games. Not good for actually watching on TV, but that's okay. We're right on the edge of baseball season. So I'm going to tell you a baseball story, and it's a story that you are probably at least somewhat familiar with. 1932, the World Series. It's between the New York Yankees and the Chicago Cubs. First couple of games were played in New York, and then they went to Chicago. It was game three of the World Series. The Yankees were up two to nothing. And there had been a lot of tension between the Cubs bench and Babe Ruth. And so we sometimes think about, you know, all the trash talk people do on social media and all that stuff. You understand that's, there's nothing new under the sun. That has always happened, and it may sound different back then than it does today. But by all accounts, the Cubs, every time Ruth is up, every time the ball's hit to him, every time he does anything, they're jeering him, they're teasing him, they're calling him names. They're just, they're really, really riding him. So it's game three, it's the top of the fifth, and Babe Ruth comes up to the plate. And by all accounts... The Cubs bench is just giving him the business. I mean, they're just all over him. And in the middle of his at-bat, he sort of steps back a little bit and he points. And the big debate is, what did he point at? Some people, including the Cubs pitcher who was on the mound at the time, said he was pointing at the Cubs pitcher, Charlie Root. Charlie Root went to his grave and he said Babe Ruth was pointing at me. Other people say, no, he was pointing at the Cubs bench. They were the ones sort of jeering at him, teasing him, giving him a hard time, and he sort of pointed at them to say, oh yeah, watch this. Legend says he was pointing where? Center field. And legend says he stepped back in the midst of this at bat, and he said, I'm going to hit a home run on the very next pitch. Well, you can decide who you think he was pointing at. There's a video, and that's sort of a grainy picture of the best video available, but you know what happened on the next pitch, right? Massive home run to dead center field in Wrigley, and there's video of him sort of circling the bases. Not very good video, but some video of him circling the bases, and I will tell you this. While he's circling the bases, he is very clearly pointing and talking at the Cubs bench, And he's sort of rubbing it in their face. Uh Aha. Now, that doesn't prove he was pointing at the Cubs bench before. He could have been pointing to center field. He could have been pointing at Charlie Rood. Nobody really knows what he was pointing at. But this is interesting. For the rest of his life, Babe Ruth never put it to rest. People would say in interviews, you were really pointing at the Cubs bench, were you? Oh, I don't really remember. It seems like I was pointing to center field. And he would sort of hem-haw around and and debate it. And baseball nerds get together and they argue, what was he pointing at? But over time, the story becomes larger than life, right? And so in, in our movies, we have movies like The Sandlot, where they imitate the babe and they step out and they call his shot. And we all know what it's talking about. We say, oh yeah, Babe Ruth did that. He called his shot, and he hit a home run on the very next pitch. And it just becomes this larger-than-life thing. I want you to understand that in John 2, in our passage, 
Jesus is clearly calling his shot. He's saying, whether you think that John has bumped this story up and it's just a couple of weeks away or a couple of days away, or whether you agree with me and you say this was several years out, Jesus is saying before the fact, I'm going to die and I am coming back to life. He's predicting his death and his resurrection. We're going to talk about how this all played out this morning. Let's think through the story. Jesus, when he shows up, he was angry that the merchants and the money changers had set up shop in the temple complex during the Passover. He was upset. He was angry that they had set up shop and they were selling these animals and they were exchanging money in the temple complex. Look at verse 14. John talks about oxen and sheep and pigeons. He talks about money changers. In verse 15, Jesus makes a whip. We'll come back to that in a minute. He drives all of them. That probably includes all the people and all the animals. He drives them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he flips over the tables and he pours out the coins of the money changers. There's no way around it in this story, looking at the the facts that John has given us, that Jesus is angry with what is happening here. The question is, and this may seem very obvious to some of you, you may have not ever actually thought of this, why is he so mad? What is it that he's so angry about? I just want to think through it with you. John doesn't really spell it out in detail, so we're sort of left to assume. Personally, I don't think that Jesus is mad or angry that people are offering these services in Jerusalem. I don't think the fact that there were money changers or the fact that there were people selling animals bothered him. I think Jesus understood. These people who come from great distances, look, he'd come from Galilee. They probably don't want to carry an animal with them the whole way and care for the animal. It'd just be easier to put a little money in your pocket and buy the animal when you get there. He understood the the rules and the laws that you had to pay the temple tax and exact coinage, and everybody didn't have that, and so they didn't have an ATM or a coin machine or anything like that. You needed somebody there who could sort of trade out the money. Now look, I assume that in this crowd there were some people ripping people off, don't you think? That's kind of human nature, right? People have come a long way. You've got a lot invested in this trip. I'm going to sort of jack the price of the animal up a little bit. I'm sure that that was happening. I'm sure that the exchange rate wasn't really fantastic. Have you ever exchanged money in an airport? Like when you're coming back from a trip, you've, you've changed your money into you know, pesos or Canadian dollars or Kenya shillings or whatever, and you're coming back and you got all this stuff, you don't need it anymore. And so you go to the little counter and they tell you what they'll give you for it, and you're like, are you kidding me right now? Well, take it with you if you don't want the exchange rate. And you go along with it. I'm sure that was happening. I don't even think that's really what Jesus was upset about, the fact that some people were making a profit. I think what Jesus was upset about, and the details that John gives us here, is that they had set up in the temple complex. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. He went up to Jerusalem in the temple. That doesn't mean in the inside holy of holies. That just means in the area designated for worship, these people had set up shop. They were selling, and they were exchanging coins back and forth. I think what Jesus is upset about is that these people, these men and women, have taken the one place the Gentiles could come and be a part, and they've essentially turned it into the Odessa Mall. 
When's the last time you went to the Odessa Mall? Did any of you go over Christmas? Right? There are an incredible number of people at the Odessa Mall from November to December. I mean, it is mind-boggling. The cars and it's shoulder-to-shoulder people. The last time we went to the Odessa Mall, I don't even remember why we went, but we went in through Dillard's, and there was a shoe sale that day. And we went in the door right by the women's shoes. I don't have any words to describe to you what I saw when I walked in that room. There are no words for the people and the boxes and the chaos and the noise and the movement. It was just completely overwhelming. You understand that at a Passover in Jesus' day, hundreds of thousands of people flooded this city. Some scholars even suggest well over a million pilgrims would have been in Jerusalem. Right? Just pick the most crowded, packed, condensed, noisy, busy, messy environment you can imagine. And that's what had been taking place in the court of the Gentiles. This open area where the nations were allowed to come and learn about Yahweh and watch how, how God's people worshipped Him. This sacred place had essentially been transformed into a Middle Eastern bazaar. No one was able to worship. When I read this story, I think about some experiences I've had in church. I just want to acknowledge this. These are not stories from here. When I was a pastor in Kentucky, we had monthly business meetings on Sunday nights. And at one of those business meetings, some of our youth leaders came and they said, hey, the youth are getting ready to go to camp and the youth need some money to go to camp. Camp's very expensive. The youth would like to have a yard sale out in front of the church on a Saturday to raise money for camp. And one of our members spoke up at this business meeting and said, huh, sounds like we're letting the money changers in. We didn't have the yard sale. We found another way. When I was a pastor in Oklahoma, one of my best friends uh, owns an Edward Jones office there. And every year he used to invite all of his clients for a free lunch. Use a local business, cater the lunch. We had a really big, really nice fellowship hall. And so every year he would come and say, hey, can I rent the fellowship hall out on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock? And can I invite my people here? Absolutely. We let people in the community use our, our building all the time. It was a little small town in rural Oklahoma. Schools were in there all the time. Uh, community organizations in there all the time. We said, absolutely. And so he would have this, uh, this sort of lunch for his clients just to say thank you, usually around Christmas time. And he'd usually make a little donation to the church to cover the cleaning and the utilities and things like that. And every year when that lunch was going on, this was really funny to me. One of his clients who went to our church, who certainly came and got her free lunch, would walk by my office after lunch and say, huh, looks like we've let the money changers in. And I used to say, is your belly full right now? What is happening? You just ate that free lunch. Come on. So I tell you these stories because I just want to make a point. I don't think this story is telling us don't have a youth fundraiser on this property. We're going to have a youth fundraiser in a couple weeks. It's going to be a lot of fun. You should come. We're going to sell cakes. We're going to have some games. And my conscience is not going to be bothered in the least that we're doing that to help the youth. I'm not going to feel like, oh, we're, we're doing what Jesus got mad about here. I don't think that's the point 
in any way, shape, or form. I don't even think the point is, who do you let in to use your building? I mean, look, I, I visited a local pastor this week, and they had a school meeting, a, a little private school meeting in their church. It wasn't associated with their church. They just pay a little rent. They use it during the week. No one else is in there. I don't think they're missing the point of this passage. I think this is what Jesus was so upset about. You have taken the most sacred day of worship for God's people. And you are ruining people's ability to worship. Right? You have set up this bazaar right here in the temple complex itself. The Gentiles can't come in and worship. Right? It's a barn in here. It's a, it's a, a stockyard in here. It's a, it's a bank lobby in here. Right? If you wanted to start to think about what the real equivalent would be in our day, it wouldn't be so much a youth fundraiser or somebody using the fellowship hall for a lunch on a Tuesday. It would be more like Easter Sunday. You walk into this building and set up in the lobby and in the back of the sanctuary are the vendors from the Odessa Mall. Just set up right here. That's not what you would expect on Easter. You expect on Easter... We're going to come. It's a big deal. We're going to get dressed. We're going to go worship Jesus who was risen from the dead. You wouldn't expect to walk into a shopping mall on the premises. And Jesus sees that and he's really, really angry about it. He's angry that people for selfish reasons are hindering the ability of other people to worship. He's angry that people are at a sacred place at a sacred time And they're not at all focused on worship. So if you want to talk about the real application of what Jesus gets angry about, it's not so much youth fundraisers or Edward Jones lunches in the fellowship hall. What Jesus gets angry with is when people come here Sunday morning, 1030, and you're not here to worship. You're here for some ulterior reason. That makes him angry. When you show up here on a Sunday, Sunday school or worship, and you, in the way that you act, in the way that you speak, and something that you're doing, you're really intentionally hindering other people's ability to worship. Jesus is angry with that. And he walks into this mess in Jerusalem, and he's angry. And he drives these people out, and he flips over their tables. I need you to understand, his anger was not an uncontrolled outburst. It was deliberate, and it was actually rooted in love. This was not Jesus flying off the handle. It wasn't a temper tantrum. It was deliberate, meaning there was deliberative, intentional thought behind what he did. And his anger was actually rooted in love. Some of you hear that and you say, I don't understand. Anger and love. What what in the world do those two things have to do with each other? How can Jesus be God? We've already seen that in John 1. And God is love, and here's Jesus angry. How do we square that circle? It's really not that difficult. As a parent, if I see somebody hurting my children, I'm going to be angry. And it's because I love them. My anger is going to be rooted in the love that I have for them. As a husband, if I see somebody hurting my wife, I'm going to be angry. It's not because I have a bad temper. It's because I love my wife. Here's Jesus. He walks into this holy place on this holy day. He loves the Father, and the Father loves him. For all eternity past, he has been with the Father in a relationship of mutual love. And now he's come to earth, and he walks into this place where people are supposed to be worshiping, and anything but worship is happening. 
And because of the great love that he has for the Father, he is rightly angry. And it's not a temper tantrum. He's not just flying off the handle. He's angry. There's a Bible scholar named Kent Hughes that says this. I'd like you to think about it. He says, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is a concept that has been so overworked that many today preach and follow a Christ who has no resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament. That Jesus is an idol, drained of his deity, a weak, good-natured deity whose great aim is to just let us off the hook. You understand that if your thoughts and ideas about Jesus don't line up with the Jesus that you read about on the pages of the New Testament, that you are an idolater. You haven't fashioned an idol with your hand, but you fashioned it in your heart and in your mind. And you've drained him of his deity. And you've turned him just into some good-natured genie who wants to let you off the hook. Jesus really isn't letting anyone off the hook here. He's angry, rightly angry, rooted in the love that he has for the Father, and he's driving people out of this complex. And I don't want you to miss this. This is important. When the temple complex was cleared, the only one left standing was the Lamb of God. Just try to put yourself in that space and that time and all the booths and all the tables and all the animals and the sights and the sounds and the smells and all of it. And Jesus deliberately makes a whip to drive them out. I've never made a whip. I don't suspect many of you have ever made a real whip. Jesus made one, and I don't know how long it takes to make a whip, but it takes some time and some thought. And he walks in, and he sees the scene, and he's outraged, he's angry. And he doesn't just fly off the handle, but he stops, and he makes a whip. And he uses it. To drive, not to just kindly ask, would you please leave the premises? To drive the people and the animals out. He drives them out in anger. And when it's, when it's all said and done, the only one left standing is the Lamb of God. And I just want you to think about how remarkable this is. We're familiar with this story. You know this story. You've heard this story. I just want you to think, what would it have been like to see Jesus over on the edge of the court of, of the Gentiles? Braiding a whip, weaving a whip, putting it together. I don't know how he did it. And with deliberate intentionality, he drives these people out in anger. It would have been remarkable to see. One man in this big, wide-open space driving everyone out. would have been remarkable to see. Even more remarkable is when it was all said and done, and everything was quiet, and all the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons were gone, and the tables had been flipped over, and the money changers were out. And the only one left standing was Jesus, the Lamb of God, at the Passover feast. I hope you see how fitting this is. John has been telling us, John the Baptist, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not going to be taken away by a pigeon. It's not going to be taken away by a sheep. It's not going to be taken away by an oxen. It is going to be taken away by Jesus and he's left alone standing in this temple complex. He's not alone for long. The authorities show up. They're the ones who had probably rented the whole thing out. They had control over this area. They probably made a buck on renting to the highest bidder for who had a booth where 
right? Placement is everything. Location is everything. So they had their little their scheme going. Jesus had just disrupted all of it, including the Passover celebration. It was all just in chaos. And they come and they want answers. Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority? This is our domain. You're some carpenter from Nazareth, some hillbilly. If you're going to do this, you need to show us a sign to prove that you have this authority. And when the authorities demand a sign, Jesus offers a sign that was outrageous on two levels. And I hope you don't see that as disrespectful to Jesus. I don't mean it in any disrespect. But the sign that he proposed really was outrageous. Jesus says this, verse 19, Destroy the temple in three days, I'll raise it up. On the surface of it, you understood what they, what they thought. They looked around at this complex. Maybe we could put the picture back up again. They're somewhere in the court of the Gentiles. And they look around at this huge complex. Right? Zerubbabel had put it back together. Herod the Great, this great builder, had been renovating this complex, this compound, for 46 years. I mean, it was massive and impressive and stately and beautiful. And they say, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, I'll tell you who I am. Tear it down and I'll build it in three days. And they just, they say, you have got to be kidding us. It has taken us 46 years to get this far. And when Jesus says, tear it down and I'll build it in three days, you understand there is 0% chance that they're going to take a hammer to anything. They're not going to do it. And Jesus knows it. And they hear this, this proposed sign, and it's completely preposterous, that one man, I don't care what kind of carpenter you are, I don't care if you're Bob Vila or whoever, Three days, it ain't going to happen. And they almost just laugh him off as crazy. But if you want to talk about crazy, think about what Jesus really meant. John pulls back the curtain here, verse 20. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Give me a break. Verse 21. But he didn't explain this to them. He didn't clarify. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered he said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's really outrageous. Outrageous enough to say that I can build a temple complex back in three days if you tear it down. Even more outrageous to look someone in the eye and say, I'm going to die, and then I'm coming back. I will not stay dead. It's an outrageous claim. I know what the skeptic thinks. Some of you may be in the position of the skeptic. I don't know. Some of you may be rock solid in your faith. Some of you may know a skeptic. But I understand what the skeptic thinks at this point. The skeptic says, you know, look, this is one of those stories that's just larger than life. One of those stories that sort of takes on a life of its own. It's really not all that different than Babe Ruth and Charlie Root and the Cubs bench and the 1932 World Series. I mean, come on. You see the picture, you see the the grainy film. He was clearly pointing at the bench, and everyone then says he was pointing at center field, and he called his shot, and he never denied it, and it just became this thing over time. Uh, He got lucky, and he just sort of happened to gesture over here, and then he hit a home run over there, and everyone remembers him as, as something great. 
He just got lucky. Sometimes the breaks go your way. And they look at this story and they say, come on, really? Really? He says something about a temple. He doesn't really explain it. And then the gullible disciples, they think he's come back from the dead and they're trying to piece it together. And someone says, hey, remember that thing he said about the temple? Maybe it wasn't really about the temple. And the skeptic looks at it and says, oh, look, it's just, that's a stretch. He said something kind of cryptic. Something happened later and it turns into this big thing. And they don't believe it. That's fine as far as John 2 goes. But you understand that John 2 is not the only time Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. Let me just show you a few verses from the Gospel of Mark. It says, He began to teach them, that's his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. No cryptic stuff about a temple, tear it down, build it back. Just cut into the chase. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. It wasn't just Mark 8. It was also Mark 9. He was teaching the disciples. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. And it's Mark chapter 10. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Remember, we always go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise over and over and over and over again. It wasn't just a cryptic statement in John 2. It was very plainly predicted. Very plainly, Jesus called his shot, and he said, I am going to die but I am not going to stay dead. This is the big idea of this passage. And it's so, so simple and it's so important. The Lamb of God came to die, but he came knowing that he would not stay dead. In a very real sense, you could take a line from John 2 and you could just draw it, an arrow, all the way to John 20 when Jesus dies. Because from the beginning to the end, that's what this book is about. Jesus came to die. You... And I have to make a decision about what we're going to do with somebody like that. Somebody who did not have to come and most certainly did not have to die. But out of the great love that he loved us with, he came knowing that he would come to die. There is compassion there that you need to find a response to. What are you going to do with the one who did not have to die your death, but came and subjected himself to humiliation and mistreatment, knowing from the beginning he would die? How will you respond to that man? And on the flip side, how will you respond to the one who has such great power and authority that even though he was coming to die, he knew from the get-go that he would not stay dead? And he called his shot so plainly and so clearly, it was unmistakable, undeniable, undebatable. I'm going to die, and I am not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. What are you going to do with that person? How are you going to respond to that man? John wants you and me to believe. He has written these things, John chapter 20, These stories about Jesus that we would believe. 
And I want to end with this. His concluding comments in this passage are intended to make us think about what it actually means to believe in Jesus. These last couple of verses might be one of my favorite little paragraphs in the entire Gospel of John. I know I've said that before. We're two chapters in. I'm going to say it 20 more times by the time we get to the end of it. But this is really great stuff. The way he wraps this story up, John is sort of poking at you. And he's saying, look, I want you to believe, but you need to think about what it means to believe in Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean. First of all, the disciples believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's straight out of verse 22. True faith for them came a little bit later. When he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he said this, and they believed the Scripture, and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. John wants you to believe, not based on a feeling in your gut, not based about, well, I'm going to pray about it and ask God to sort of make me lean one way or the other. He wants you to believe based on the Scriptures, that this is the true, inerrant, living Word of God. True saving faith is rooted in the promises of God revealed to us in the Scriptures. No other place. You can't find it any other place. It's not rooted in the church. It's rooted in the scriptures. It's not rooted in an experience you have. It's rooted in the scriptures. And he sets the disciples up as an example. And he says, look, when, they, when it all clicked, they got it. They believed. And they believed the scriptures. And they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. That's one way to respond. Here's another way to respond. The crowds. They, quote, unquote, believed when they saw the signs Jesus was doing. And I think this is where you really got to wade through John and think about what he's saying to us. Verse 23, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed, and I'm using quotes there, believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. You would like to look at that verse, and I would like to look at that verse and say, what signs was he doing? You didn't tell us about the signs. And John says, that's not the point. You don't need to know the specifics. He was doing signs, and they believed when they saw the signs. But you know, and I know, because we've read the end of this story, by the time we get to the end of John, these are the exact same people who are going to turn face on Jesus. It's the very same people who are going to end up saying, crucify him. Kill him. We want nothing to do with him. Caesar is our king, not Jesus of Nazareth. These are not people who have true faith. And John is throwing this word out there to make you wrestle with, well, what kind of faith do I have? Is my faith rooted and grounded in the Scriptures, or is my faith rooted and grounded in some sort of feeling or experience? One is real, the other is not. Thirdly, I want you to see this. I want you to hear this. Jesus did not believe in the crowds because he knew their hearts. This is one of the most fascinating parts of the whole passage. Look at verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. That's the Greek verb. We talked about it several weeks now. Pistuo. They believed. It's an active thing. They believed in his name when they saw the signs. Verse 24. But Jesus on his part, I'm reading the ESV. It says he did not entrust himself. It's the same verb. Pistuo. Jesus did not believe to them because he knew them. 
And he didn't need anyone to tell him what was in a man because he himself knew what was in a man. It's the exact same verb in verse 23 and verse 24. These people come and they quote-unquote believe. And in response, Jesus looks at them and he doesn't believe them. And he doesn't trust himself to them. So you've got the disciples who believe in the scriptures. You've got the crowds who believe in these signs. And you've got Jesus not believing in the crowds. This is what John is saying to us. I think it's pretty simple. There's two types of faith. Saving faith and there's unsaving faith. There's genuine faith and there's phony faith. James talks about this, right? There's faith accompanied by works and there's faith that is like the demons have. One you want, the other you want to run away from. And John's saying, look, the disciples believed in this way. They believed and it was rooted and it was grounded in the scripture. There's all these other people, they believe and it's just sort of a, eh. I saw a sign, I saw something impressive. Felt something. I experienced something. One is real, one is not. You can flip this coin and look at it from the other side and I think John is saying to us there's two ways to reject Jesus. One way to reject Jesus is to defy him to his face, to see him standing in the temple and to look him in the eyeballs and say, who do you think you are? Who gave you the right? And people do that today. Who do you think you are to tell me how I should live my life? Who do you think you are to tell me what's right and wrong? Who do you think you are to tell me that I can love this person or not this person? Who do you think you are? You can take that route of defiance or another way to reject Jesus is just to go along with the crowd. To sort of get swept up in the excitement, to be in the right room at the right place at the right time. And really you want nothing to, G, nothing to do with Jesus. And when the, when the moment comes, you'll look at him and you'll say, be done with him. Crucify him. I don't want him to rule over me. He is not my king. How do you respond to Jesus? That's the question. The one who came to die knowing he wouldn't stay dead. How do you respond to the compassion that he showed us in coming to the cross? How will you respond? How do you respond to someone who has the power and the authority and the right to say, I am coming to die for these people, but I am not going to stay dead. I will come back to life. And you can tear this temple down in three days, and I will build it back. John says, believe. Believe.